I think I'm quite unusual when it comes to OCD because I can remember to the day, to the moment that my OCD began. Today we're talking to journalist and author David Adam, who goes deep into his longtime struggle with OCD and how he was able to get help and ultimately help others. It's personal, it's real, and it helps bust the myths that so many of us have when it comes to what we think OCD is like. If you've ever been confused about what obsessive compulsive disorder actually is, or if you know the struggle all too well, you'll want to listen to today's baggage check. Welcome, everyone. Can I say everyone? Do I have to have a certain amount of listeners to say that? Because I will say, we've been reaching some recent milestones, and we are growing quite a bit. Anyway, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it is also not a show about the fourth valve of the flugelhorn. All right, let's get going. Today we're going to be talking about obsessive-compulsive disorder, or OCD, one of the most widely mentioned but also widely misunderstood psychological disorders. So it's really exciting to me that I'm able to bring you somebody who has struggled with this himself and who's written about it and speaks about it. His name is David Adam, and he's a best-selling author and journalist. His book, The Man Who Couldn't Stop... OCD and the True Story of a Life Lost in Thought details his struggle with OCD, and he was kind enough to speak with us today. For those of you who don't have a real familiarity with OCD, I'll give you just a moment of the basics. OCD is made up of two components. Most people have both components, but technically you could just have one or the other in order to meet criteria for it. The first component is the O, the obsessions part. Those are intrusive, repetitive, disruptive thoughts that become really bothersome. There are some obsessions that are very common in folks with OCD, but really obsessions could be just about anything, anything that's repetitive and intrusive, where the thought itself becomes so bothersome that it causes distress. David's obsessions involve the possibility of being infected with the HIV virus. For some people, it's a fear of germs or other contamination, or it's a sexual thought or an aggressive impulse, or the need for things to be symmetrical. The second component of OCD is the C part, compulsion. Those are the behaviors that someone repeats. Some people call them rituals. But these develop into habits that are attempts to try to deal with the discomfort of the obsessions. Compulsions can be mental. You might be doing a behavior in your head, like counting. Certain common compulsions are counting out loud or in your head, as I mentioned, or checking or washing or repetitive body movements. For David, the ritual involved seeking reassurance from others that he had not been infected. Of course, the more the obsessions bother you, the more you engage in the compulsion and you start to get trapped in that cycle. Because the compulsion doesn't make you feel better for very long. And you get so bothered by those obsessions, those intrusive thoughts, that your whole life starts to shift around the distress that's being caused by them. It's really a vicious cycle, but there is help, which we'll talk about in this episode. 
There's so much to say about OCD, and no doubt we will have many episodes covering different aspects of it in the future. For now, I'm just thrilled to bring you David's story in his own words. And one final note, this show does mention blood and also physical intimacy between a married couple. Nothing graphic or gory, but just be aware in case there are sensitivities or little ears listening. Of course, some of you might have just gotten a lot more interested. In any case, here's the show. So, David, I am really glad that you made the time to join me today. And I really think that OCD is such an important topic and there's so much misinformation about it. So I really appreciate you being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, so why don't we start with hearing more for you how your OCD story got started and what you noticed early on when some of your symptoms became an issue for you. So I um, I think I'm quite unusual when it comes to OCD because I can remember to the day, to the moment that my OCD began. And it, well, it was a long time ago. It was, it was 1991. Uh, it was August. And I was on holiday from university, my parents' house, and I'd been out with some friends and I had a few drinks. And I was walking home and it was a really warm summer's evening, which is unusual for, for Britain. You know? So that's one, another reason why I remember it. And I just had this really crazy thought, this thought that said, you could have AIDS, you could have HIV. And um, I, I say in, in the book, it was, it was so out of place. It was as if a snowflake had fallen out of the sky in the middle of August. And that started a blizzard of what we now, what I now know are called intrusive thoughts around mm-hmm. HIV and AIDS and how I could have caught it. Now, I grew up in the, in the 80s. So HIV and AIDS was sort of the big societal fear. It was, I can almost remember at school when everyone stopped worrying about nuclear war and started worrying about mm-hmm. HIV because there was a big sort of public information campaign. And so it turns out it's actually it was actually really common. It's a really common topic for OCD. But I hadn't had any kind of mm-hmm. OCD symptoms before, and it was it was it was paralyzing. It was debilitating. It was very very scary. It was also very weird because I knew I hadn't done anything that would sort of lead to me contracting HIV. I hadn't you know done any high risk behaviour, and and yet as much as I tried to rationalise my way out of it the thoughts just kept coming, the, the thoughts just kept coming. And it was mm-hmm. the same message, you know, you could have AIDS, you could have HIV. And and so, I mean, we can get onto this, I suppose, but w- what I did in response to that was to essentially seek reassurance, uh, which became my compulsive behaviour. And then mm-hmm. I got locked into the cycle because as you know, and I since discovered, the more that you perform these compulsions, the more likely you make these thoughts to come back and you get locked into this cycle. And, right. and that happened to me very quickly. You know, within mm-hmm. days, I was just in, in pieces. Um, I, I was having, I knew I was having these thoughts. I knew that they weren't, they didn't make any sense. And so not only was I really frightened about the thought of having HIV, which in those days was portrayed as a, as a death sentence, essentially. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't a manageable disease like it is now. It was something that lots of people were very frightened of. So not only was I frightened by that, but I was also kind of frightened by the fact that I knew this was silly. I was doing it to myself. There was no external threat. It was all from within. Um, right. Yeah. So that was that was my OCD. 
Yeah. And so it really sounds like it totally snowballed pretty much right away. You have that first intrusive thought. You can even remember the moment of that. And because that thought was so distressing, was so out of nowhere in an upsetting way, you really moved towards some compulsive reactions to it pretty quickly. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, of course, at this time, I didn't realize it was a compulsive reaction. I didn't realize these were intrusive thoughts. I just thought that I could um, that I could rationalize it. That I could, if I could show myself, so I couldn't understand why I wasn't accepting my own reassurance. So I thought mm-hmm. I'll just get somebody else's reassurance. I'll hear it from somebody else, and right. that will that will do it. That will work. Right. And of course, as you mentioned, it works not in the least, and actually keeps the cycle going. At what point did you feel like okay, maybe? there's a name for this. Maybe this is something that is fairly specific having to do with the way that my brain is working. So, I mean, that's a good question. I think at the time I thought it was some kind of phobia. That's how I sort of identified Mm. it. You know, I knew people who were very scared of spiders and I thought that that's what this was. And I very naively just assumed it would go away in time. I kept saying to myself, you know, the next day, I'll, I'll just do this check or this yes. seeking reassurance one more time. And yes. then everything I'll wake up tomorrow, and everything will be fine. And of course, it, it didn't and it doesn't work like that. So I hadn't heard the term OCD at the time. I think I did go, I went to see a psychiatrist a few mm-hmm. years later. And that was the diagnosis was OCD, which is the first time I think I'd put two and two together. Because I still think, I think I thought that this was... I, I felt I didn't really understand what OCD was. And, and to me, I was behaving in a rational, my response was rational, even though the thoughts weren't, because right. I thought I'm doing what I can to to show myself to try and answer these thoughts, to try and respond right. to them. So, yeah, I would say it, it took it took a few years, I think, um, mm-hmm. for, for me to get a diagnosis. And I don't think in the period in between I thought I had OCD I thought it was some kind of phobia and even when they diagnosed yeah. me with OCD I still resisted it and thought well this isn't I'm not behaving irrationally <laughs> I'm right. thinking irrationally but what I'm doing is what anyone would do in this situation right so I thought it was the thoughts that were the problem mm-hmm. and, and again we can get onto this when I eventually had treatment one of the things that I wanted was the thoughts to be taken away but of course you know, we know that's not how it works. Exactly. And I think that's important for our listeners that for a lot of people that have things like phobias, it can be a matter of recognizing, hey, that dog's not going to kill me. (laughs) You know, some exposure therapy in the sense of realizing that you're safe with the dog can provide some reassurance over time. But with OCD, that reassurance kind of feeds the idea that the thoughts the thoughts basically keep coming back because the reassurance, as you mentioned, doesn't work. And so in your mind, you're thinking, well, as long as I reassure myself, then these irrational thoughts will go away. But in reality, the way that the irrational thoughts are perpetuating, that in and of itself is such a cycle that makes OCD stand out. Those thoughts themselves become so distressing, so pervasive, so sticky that they create this really big cycle of helplessness. And I'm sitting here imagining you going through this for several years, 
even before you get that OCD diagnosis, did it really kind of hover around the obsession of HIV or did you start to see additional obsessions and additional compulsive behaviors spread? No, it was it was only around HIV and AIDS. It was it was very particular. I mean, I'll give you an example of just how extreme it was. I would play football, for example, or soccer, and um, we'd play on astroturf, you know, which mm-hmm. in those days was was like sandpaper. And I would fall over and I'd scrape my knee, and I'd get home. And because while I was playing football, while I was playing soccer, I was fine. I, I was sort of wasn't dwelling on things. But then when I got home, I would start thinking about what could have happened. And I mm. thought, well, there could have been blood on that pitch someone else could have fallen over at that exact space they could have left a smear of blood behind that could have been hiv infected blood that could have got into my system therefore i could have caught hiv now you know this 12 months ago i would have laughed at that idea i would have thought it's just so ridiculous it's so far-fetched it's not even worth considering but the thing about ocd or my ocd was that i couldn't i had a blind spot when it came to HIV, not with anything else. You know, I was happy to take other very small risks. I, I drove. I would. I would fly in an aeroplane. You know, even though there was a genuine but very small risk of, of a disaster. Uh, but with HIV, I just couldn't live with that small amount of uncertainty. So, at the time, there was a telephone number you could call, uh, a national AIDS helpline, and, and I would call it and I would say things like, "This, this has just happened. I, I was playing football. I hurt my knee. There could have been blood on the ground," and they would say, "No, no, no, nothing to worry about. You know, the risk of that is is very low." Um, so I got that little hit of reassurance that everything was going to be okay because this reassurance was external. It was somebody else saying that, and then I'd put the phone down and I. This shows how long ago it was, by the way, because this was in a, a telephone box. This is back in the day when phones were still nailed to the walls, and if you wanted privacy. You had to leave your house and and find a phone box. And I would go to leave the phone box and then a little voice in my head would say, wait, the risk was very low, so it's not zero. So actually there could be a problem there. I need to describe it in a different way. I need to describe it better. They might tell me there was a risk. And this would go on and on and on. It got to the point where they would start to recognise my voice, you know, when I called them back and say, you know, we've just spoken to you, you need to go away and accept this. And of course that's what OCD just does not permit it does not permit you to to live with that very small chance, with that uncertainty. OCD demands certainty, which in some things is, is impossible. And that's at such the heart of a lot of anxiety disorders, really, is this real difficulty struggling with uncertainty. And we actually measure that in a lot of the research, this uncertainty intolerance, so to speak. And I think what's hard is that in life, uncertainty is a given. The only certain thing really is that there will be uncertainty. And so on a daily basis, you're trying to get reassurance and there is no reassurance to the 100% stance that you can actually achieve. And these experts are saying, oh, your risk is very low. And what you're hearing is, hey, that's not zero. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a scene in a movie. I can't remember what the movie is. Jim Carrey and Cameron Diaz and you know he says something like what are the chances of you going on a date with me and she kind of thinks and says something like you know 10 million to one and his response is oh you're telling me there's a chance (laughs) it's it's that you know you focus on the you focus on the one in a million because well why shouldn't that one in a million be me i even worked it out someone once told me that the risk of catching hiv from kissing someone was one in a million you know and i actually sat down and Mm -hmm. i worked out how many people there are in the world. Let's assume they all kiss two people a year, blah, blah, blah. And I worked out that two people a year would catch HIV through kissing. So why wouldn't one of them be me? 
you know, that's the ludicrous. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's it's not meant to be a predictive statistic. It's just meant to show you how very unlikely it right. is in, in your situation. And I wasn't really talking to anybody about this either. So the fact that it's all inside your own head just makes it very difficult. I just felt like I wanted to switch my brain off and start it again. It's like, because I knew it was, yeah. there was something going wrong, but I thought it wasn't that serious because the rest of my brain was okay. It was just this one particular thing. If I can just sort of have a, just have a break from it. Mm-hmm. almost forget it and then I, it, I won't remember it again and I'll just be able to, to go forward so I had all these very naive ideas about how I would just I just wake up one morning and it would all be gone and, and I think that's you will know better than I but I, I I think that's quite common with OCD I think one of the reasons people don't get treatment mm-hmm. for so long is that it's just so yeah. bizarre and so weird that you just expect it to stop because it doesn't make any sense it's not you know yeah. it's, it's completely alien and um, there's no there's no reason for it there's no benefit to it and so you think there's just you know it will it will go away and it doesn't unfortunately and i imagine that's behind a lot of shame too because you know that that it has a weird quality to it you imagine that maybe you're the only one feeling this way did you feel that way at the time i definitely that... did yeah and and it's because ocd you know tends to focus in on the things that we are you know, it is around kind of germs and sex and, and mm-hmm. violence and, and these things that that we kind of tend to shy away from talking about anyway. So the psychiatrist who I saw at university, he, he, that there wasn't a great deal of help in terms of what the treatments were, but he did say something which made a massive impact on me. And that was, I said exactly that. I feel like I must be the only person in the world to have these crazy thoughts about HIV. And he said that he was treating three people at the university for the same thing. And, mm-hmm. and hearing mm-hmm. that somebody else could be going through what I was going through. Yeah, it just that it, can really be a game changer. Yeah, it just rebuilt that connection. And again, you know, this was before the internet. It was before you couldn't just go online and Google your symptoms and, and there weren't chat rooms and there weren't support groups and all this sort of thing. So it gave me hope. You know, I thought, well, I, okay, I've, I'm not stranded on this crazy island all by myself. You know, there, mm-hmm. there are other people, and the fact there are other people going through the same thing suggests that it's not just my brain that's doing this. So therefore, there might be a, a way back, I suppose. Yeah. Do you think your loved ones or your friends would have noticed, or did they notice at the time? I mean, these years that you're going through this silent battle, and you haven't yet gotten a diagnosis, and you're thinking this is weird, but I can just reassure myself. Were other people aware of it? Do you? Think? No, I don't think so. I think because my OCD was very portable, so I, you know, I didn't have to turn lights on and off, or wash my hands all the time, or or perform, right. you know, avert rituals. I could just be very frightened, and then I would go and seek reassurance in my own time. Now, I think it definitely affected the kind of person who I was, affected me, you know, my personality and my behavior, my decision making. But there's no reason why anybody else would know the reasons for that. They just saw the output. Right. Because your compulsive behavior in terms of that reassurance really wasn't as overt as a lot of folks' compulsions. No, exactly. Like you said, where, you know, and I think... There's a stereotype. Well, there are so many stereotypes of OCD that are often total misconceptions, and we'll get into those. But I think oftentimes there is a stereotype that with OCD, things are so over. You know, this is the person that's very actively counting the number of steps as they go up them, or they're very actively arranging or sorting things in a certain order, or they've got some body movements that they must repeat in very specific ways. 
And then there are other folks where the compulsions themselves are more mental. You know, they're doing things inside their head to try to reassure like you or to try to soothe the anxiety of the obsessions. And I think it just speaks to the fact that there are so many people for whom there are these silent battles being waged. And if we're sitting next to them on the subway, or even if we're eating dinner with them, we might not have any idea. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and that was certainly how it was with me. I, I told very, very few people, mm-hmm. even by the time I wrote the book, because, and, and in fact, when I first sort of signed the deal to write the book, and they, the publishers wanted to put out a press release, and I said, no, no, you can't, you can't tell anyone. Because <laughs> mm. I have to tell people like my parents first. I think it's partly because you're embarrassed by what it is that you're confessing to. And I think also there is just that awkwardness that because of the topic. And I think also there is just this because I'd, I'd sort of kept it to myself for so long. To me, it was it was the most important thing about me. It was the defining feature mm-hmm. of me. And I thought no one else is going to understand just how pervasive it is. You know, even I, yeah. someone who suffered it for so long, can't really appreciate just how consuming it was. It just doesn't seem possible right. that you can think the same thing all day, every day for, yeah. for years. You know, it's just does not seem feasible. But mm-hmm. it was, and it still is for lots and lots of people. For sure. You really sort of came out with your story in a big way. By the way, I have a book proposal about this, and I've got to tell you now, you know, how how was the response of your friends and family when you did decide to convey to them what you were experiencing? It was, do you know what? The best thing about the response was that it was really understated because mm-hmm. they'd be like, oh, yeah. You know, I know someone who's like that, or I I do a bit of that, or I feel... So there was no one... To me, as I said, it was the most important thing about me. defined me, defined my life and the decisions that I'd made. And I guess I would blame it for things that didn't go so well. Yeah. And I was expecting, I think, when I told people, for them to drop things and go, oh, my God, that's terrible, and how... But they were like, oh, Mm -hmm. right, yeah. Yeah. They just saw it as a part of me, not not kind of... To them, it didn't define who I was. It was just yes. part of who I was. And that was very, it was very normalizing in a way. And it helped a great deal because very quickly, you know, really good friends, we would, I don't know what you, your phrase is, take the mickey out of each other. Um, hmm. You know, like we, we quit taking the <laughs> out of each other, but that's different in America. <laughs> um, Busting each other's chops, maybe. Okay, right. So. <laughs> we'll have to look it up later. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, we'd just be teasing each other, I suppose. And uh, so good friends sort of you know, tease each other about things. Mm-hmm. And it became something that they would tease me about very quickly, which meant mm-hmm. I knew it was it was accepted, I suppose. And, and it yeah. wasn't, the fact that it wasn't a, as big a deal for them as, it, as I thought it would be. I mean, by this time I was also, I'd had the treatment and I was in a decent place. Again, it just helped, I think, to rebuild those connections. Because almost, yeah. almost everybody, in fact, there are some at the beginning of the book Mm-hmm. I, when I told people I was writing the book, that everyone wanted to share their own intrusive thought, their own really mm-hmm. weird thought, you know. And there was someone who they are relatively high profile in the UK now, you know, in the media, and and they told me that every time they went to the toilet, they worried about rats coming up and biting them, <laughs> and and that went mm-hmm. in the book because that was I thought well that's a good yeah. one. You know, but these people didn't have OCD, yet they had these intrusive thoughts. So everyone could connect to it, even if, you know, and everyone my age recognised the fear about HIV and AIDS. 
it wasn't like you know some topics for OCD are completely off the wall. You know, this was right. it was a real disease that people did actually catch and, and yes. affected their lives. So I think all of that helped. It helped me a great deal. Mm -hmm. I think so many times with mental health disorders in general, there's a sense that the person is completely defined by it. You know, as, as you mentioned, this idea that for you in your head, you're like, this is the biggest thing about me. And I talk to my students about that all the time, that we tend to view mental health disorders as being this all-encompassing thing. You know, even in the way that we use language, we often don't talk about the people with the disorders. We label people by their disorders and we forget that they're musicians and they're brothers and they're artists and they like to eat pizza and they're talented in this way and they're funny in this way. And I think to hear your friends sort of be like, oh yeah, okay, this is another part about you. It sounds like it removed some of the weight of it, there was some of the weight of feeling like, oh my goodness, I have this big secret thing that maybe is shameful and maybe it, people are gonna view me differently after I tell them. Yeah, I mean, it went it went away. You were still you. It, it evaporated. Yeah. So this is the thing about, Yeah. sometimes people say, oh, you know, did writing the book help you with your OCD? And I say, well, it doesn't help with the direct symptoms of OCD because why would it? You know, if it was that easy, no one would have, would have OCD. You know, it's a medical issue. It needs medical help. But because I hadn't told anybody about it, there was, um, as well as the direct effect of the symptoms of OCD on me, there was an indirect effect caused by me being so secret about it, which made me feel like I was deceiving people or made me think that I, I would second guess decisions that I made, was making me live a parallel mm -hmm. life thinking, you know, what would I have done differently if I hadn't have been like this? Where would I be now? What would I be doing? And that makes you feel as if a lot of your actions and your relationships are based on sort of very false foundations. You know, there are people yeah. who I met after I had OCD who died before I, before I had my treatment for OCD. So, you know, they, mm. the only person, the only version of me they ever knew was the person whose behavior was affected by OCD. And that really makes me sad, you know, sad is an understatement, yeah. to think that, you know, I never had the chance, in my view, to sort of show them the best me. Now, um, mm. when you start talking about it, when you start telling people about it, and everybody knows, and I'm you know, I now talk to random strangers over things that took me 20 years to tell my parents. Um, it's that side of it just evaporates immediately. So there's mm -hmm. still, it doesn't help with the direct effects, the direct symptoms of OCD, but, it, but being honest and talking and writing about it has, has removed those indirect effects. Yeah. And that's why the work that you do in terms of speaking and writing about it is so important because it gives people a lifeline when maybe they didn't know that it existed. It can help them build empathy, but it can also help them get help if they are suffering from this themselves. Yes. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, that's one of the reasons why I always say yes to to requests, you know, to your request and to other requests, mm -hmm. um, because I see the impact that it that people talking about it not just me people talking about it can have you know every time when the book came out every time i did a radio interview my inbox my emails just filled up with people saying oh my god i thought i was the only one you know and and yeah every day there's someone else develops or diagnosed with ocd who, who didn't pay attention before so there'll be people listening to this now who are thinking oh my god he's 
they're reading my mind. I didn't know anybody else ever thought like this. So I think I, having kind of put myself out there, I mean, it's all ironic, really, because I never really wanted to raise awareness and be this kind of, you know, person who would help other people. I'd, I just thought I was a really bad role model because I kept it for my, to myself for so long. Mm. Uh, you know, I thought there were people out there who were challenging themselves, challenging their OCD as teenagers. You know, that, to me, that was far yeah. more um, impressive. But it turns out there's just so few people talking and writing about this kind of stuff in a, in a relatable way. That, yeah. that people there's an audience there for it for sure yeah and and to anybody listening to this now i was you i was listening you know i was desperate for information i was stunned that anybody else could feel the way that i did that could yeah and for those listeners both those who might be suffering and for those who just kind of have some misconceptions about OCD. You know, I think your your point was so interesting about how some people's reaction when hearing you was, oh, yeah, I have some intrusive thoughts too. Or, oh, yeah, I'm scared of HIV as well. And so maybe we spend some time sort of talking about how the intrusive thoughts of OCD are fundamentally different than the intrusive thoughts that most of us can let go of. You know, I always use the example in my class when I'm teaching about OCD that, you know, you might be sitting in the back of the class right now and you might have a random thought, hey, what if I punch Professor Bonnier in the face, <laughs> you know? And for most people, they have that random thought that's like, oh, that's a weird thought. I must be hungry or this class must have gotten really boring today or whatever. We let these thoughts pass. They don't seem to stick. They don't seem to upset us and then become this repetitive, obsessive, intrusive cycle. So would you mind taking a little time and sort of talking about the difference between the random thought of somebody without OCD who says, uh-oh, HIV is scary. I hope I don't get it versus the kind of cycle and, and trap that you found yourself in with OCD? So, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't frame it quite in that way because one of the things that really helped me in therapy was the learning or believing that everybody has the same kind of thoughts, that everybody mm, has intrusive mm -hmm. thoughts, and that what is different is the way that I handled them or failed to right. handle them. So, again, in the book, I describe intrusive thoughts as sort of seeds that scatter across the population and in, in in most people they don't take root and they just you know they just don't do anything but in some people they they take root and they grow into these kind of horrible yes. ocd plants um so i think because we know that there were people throughout history who reported intrusive thoughts who didn't have ocd you know and, mm -hmm. and in fact one of the one of the only places that people talk about intrusive thoughts openly seems to be stand-up comedians they all they, you know, they all say <laughs> yes. don't, you know do you get that weird feeling when you're going to jump in front of a train or jump out of a high window yeah. or and so i think the thoughts are pretty much the same i think what difference mm -hmm. is that and and again you will know this better than than i but as i understand it you know there are some psychological reasons why some people are more likely to react badly to a thought like that and mm -hmm. by reacting badly i mean react at all rather than just right sort of just dismissing it as you know ephemeral nonsense of the mind we, mm -hmm. we we give it meaning and we try and interpret it and we try and understand it and we try and challenge it um, and, and yes. why do we do that well that you know that's we don't know i think is the honest answer but there are certain personality types that maybe are more likely to turn these thoughts into these sort of conditions mm -hmm. and there are certain topics you know if you are very religious 
if you have mm-hmm. a thought about God or the devil or Jesus or the Virgin Mary, that's going to have more uh, resonance with you than someone who is not religious. You know, someone who, right. who has intrusive thoughts about finding the, the Virgin Mary attractive, for example, sexually attractive, which is a real intrusive thought, mm-hmm. is not going to yeah. bother someone who is not religious. Exactly. And, and so there's something about why it is pertinent for, for an individual, and that, that's based on a whole complex tapestry of their own beliefs and personality types. And Right. But I, I think one of the things that we know uh, that can sort of lead one to the other is is indulging them and, and taking them seriously. So the example I always use when I talk to people mm-hmm. is that um, Winston Churchill had that, he had intrusive thoughts around stepping in front of a train, so much so that when the express mm-hmm. train came through the station, he would have to stand behind a platform. He would physically put himself. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, let's say the next day someone does that but they don't feel reassured enough so they take a a further step back and the next day they don't come into the station at all and the next day they can't leave the house very quickly you've gone from an intrusive thought that everybody experiences almost everybody experiences to something Mm -hmm. which you have you've kind of you've almost fertilized it you know you've you've helped it take root because one of the things that from an OCD perspective is that you can't outthink a thought. You know, when you get one of these really weird thoughts and you can't make it go away, right. you're kind of stuck for options. So the only thing you can do is change your behavior because that's the only thing that you have any control over, which is mm-hmm. why you get so many of these really, uh, what look really odd rituals. You know, there's there's no logical reason why someone tapping three times on a wall would would stop them feeling bad about the thought about someone dying. But it just makes them feel better, right. so they keep doing it, and then it becomes a uh, locked in as this as this cycle. So, yeah, that was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> not at all, not at all, and it's so powerful to hear you talk about it from a first person perspective because I think conceptually that's how we think about it. These thoughts sort of taking root, you know. And a lot of my work with acceptance and commitment therapy and mindfulness cognitive behavioral therapy techniques is about allowing thoughts to not get sticky. Right. And I see it that same way. There's a big difference between a thought that passes and doesn't create this cycle of distress about the thought versus the thought that that takes root. It starts to grow. As you said, it's the seed that then sticks and it grows roots. And guess what? Now it's a lot more formidable. And, you know, the person who has the passing intrusive thought about the train, you know, they're still showing up the next morning to ride. Whereas the person who's trapped in this cycle, as you said, now it starts to affect your life. You can't go on the train anymore, or you might've developed such a complicated ritual before going on the train that it's taking hours out of your day or whatever it might be. So when you were diagnosed, did treatment immediately follow from that? Did, did you have stops and starts with treatment? So it's kind of a long story. The short version is that I first went for help in the mid-90s and uh, I got an elastic band. That was my treatment. It was it was called thought stopping. Oh, the thought stopping yeah. techniques. Yeah. And then, you know, the idea was that it was based on the behavioral psychology of um, yes. everything is learned, even even bad behavior. And so if, uh, every time I had one of these thoughts, I was supposed to snap an elastic band against my wrist because that would then, mm-hmm. I would learn to associate that pain or that shock with, with the thought and I'd stop. It, it didn't work, yes. let's just say that. Spoiler one. alert. I know, it's like for our <laughs> listeners, <laughs> that is no longer thought of yeah. as being so helpful. Um, yes. And uh, fast forward to 10, 15 years later, 
I went and I got proper treatment. And by proper treatment, I mean, you know, the, the gold standard evidence-based mixture of cognitive behavioral therapy and a high, quite a high dose of antidepressants, which I still take mm -hmm. every day. Actually, to be fair, in the 90s, they also gave me Prozac, but without the sort of behavioral therapy, I didn't really notice much difference. And I just stopped taking the Prozac. Right. Um, whereas now I still take them. You know, I, had the, I first had the therapy over 10 years ago, mm -hmm. and I still take the, the drugs even today. Yeah. But, oh, it breaks my heart, though, that still there was such a length of time between even getting the OCD diagnosis or getting some type of pseudo treatment in the beginning, well, it, like with it, the rubber band, before getting like something it was, like exposure. It, it was my own fault. It was entirely my own fault. I, I kind of knew that there was a, or I came to know that there was a different treatment available, that I hadn't mm -hmm. had the best option. And essentially, I was too cowardly to take it. I thought... I'll leave it there just in case things get really bad because I knew that if mm. I tried it and it didn't work, I was completely out of options. Whereas yeah. I thought I could always sort of, you know, in emergency break glass um, and reach I for see. it. And that yeah. it wasted years, basically. Yeah. At the time, it provided you some sort of comfort to think, well, there's still this thing that could yeah. work better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then, you know, it's, it's a long story, but I ended up sort of, bottoming out and 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 I thought right this has to end right now and I went for the treatment and luckily for me it, it worked yeah can you talk about the specific cognitive behavioral treatment I don't know it was exposure and response prevention yes it was um so because mine uh, at this stage it was almost all around um blood I was sort of, mm -hmm. sort of infected blood everywhere um it was quite difficult to recreate um mm. you know so it was things like, um, like at the time I was having intrusive thoughts around blood, uh, my own blood, and I had children and babies. And it, it, essentially what I was told to do was just not perform the compulsions. So it was very hard for me mm -hmm. to artificially trigger the obsessions because, you know, you can't go around splashing blood on people. But I was just told essentially my way of dealing with it was when you have one of these um, exposures that come naturally just don't perform the compulsions you know that, that was right. which it sounds so obvious and so easy you know mm -hmm. but of course through the weeks it would I would try it and it wouldn't work and we'd talk about it and and they would you know give me uh, I suppose mental tips to try and help me and what helped weirdly and I'm not proud of this at all what helped me the most was when um, the therapist basically took responsibility for it mm. he, he said you know, one of the things that I'd worried about was if I cut myself shaving was to, you know, I might get infected blood into my baby's eye or something like that. You know, and he said, you know, I want you next time you cut yourself shaving to let your baby touch you where you've injured yourself. You know, and you mm -hmm. wish you will get blood on her fingers and you will find that difficult. But this is what I want you to do. And then he would say, you know, I've got a well-paid job. If, if, if your daughter gets AIDS because of this, it's my fault and I'll lose my job. You know, do you think I would? I would do anything that would make you lose my own job. And weirdly, because he took kind of responsibility for it, yeah, it, it helped me to be able to, I didn't actually do it, but it helped me to understand a bit more about where the blind spot was, I think. You know, it's, I mean, it, this, is, right. this is one of the interesting things about OCD is that I do occasionally have intrusive thoughts around things like leaving the iron on and burning the house down. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but I never have those intrusive thoughts about my wife doing it. And she's probably more likely to do it. You know, because when I'm away for work or I'm away 
with friends, you know, for a weekend or a week or whatever it is, it's not my responsibility to make sure the house doesn't burn down. It's, yeah. you know, so, so there is this, this context around it. Right. And I think that context speaks so much to the idea of guilt, you know, oh my goodness, if, if this happened on my watch, then, you know, it's intrusively even more bothersome because this would be something that I did. And it speaks to that sense of control and, and how when it's somebody else doing it, it's kind of not your problem to the extent, mm -hmm. obviously you don't want your wife burning down the house, but there's not that sense of mental responsibility of, of mental weight. So yeah, for listeners, the idea of exposure and response prevention is to be exposed to the intrusive thought or the obsession, and then to have that response that you would typically have to have that prevented. That's where the response prevention comes in or the ritual prevention that we would also sometimes say. And I wonder for you, it is such an interesting conundrum because with the blood-related obsession, it automatically means that it's going to be harder, like you said, to sort of get those exposures in. But have you heard from other people where it's a little bit simpler that, you know, whatever their obsessions are, they're able to go into a therapist's office, you know, that first day and be able to have some exposures sort of I mean, in the therapy Yeah, room. so well, we, you know, I, I had group therapy. So I, I got to hear mm -hmm. a lot about other people's exposures and what they were asked to do. And I mean, there was an example. This is a real example. It's going to sound as if I've made it up, but I really haven't. There was a, a lady in my group therapy who she also was having intrusive thoughts around HIV. And she was worried about passing it on to her, her husband. And so mm. her, her homework, if you like, her exposure uh, was to go and have sex, go home and have sex with her husband. And mm -hmm. she'd have to come in the next week and mm -hmm. say how many times she'd managed to go and have sex with her husband. <laughs> because that was, yeah, it makes that, sense. she was worried about yeah. passing on HIV to her husband. So she had to do what yeah. she was frightened of, I suppose. That was the exposure, you know, and, and then I guess her response would have been to go and get tested for HIV or whatever. And, uh, and, and she was right. prevented or she was told to not to do that. Um, so, so there's an example. Right. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And of course, not happening in the therapy room. <laughs> but that one's much more accessible within the marital home. You know, it really speaks to the importance of loved ones and specifically the importance of loved ones not participating in the reassurance. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. You know, even if somebody's not in official treatment, if somebody's got some of this symptomology, how can loved ones resist the well-meaning urge to say, oh, okay, well, you don't have to go to that place then. Or, you know, I think we do this, especially as parents, if a kid is having OCD symptomology, we sort of provide the reassurance over and over and over again. Oh, no, you're not going to get sick from that or, or whatever we're saying. And we don't realize that we are keeping that cycle of their compulsion going, or we're letting their compulsions continue, because quite frankly, it seems cruel to have the person go through the distressing obsession and not be able to enact the compulsive behavior. How can loved ones manage that? And how can we empower them to not be part of the problem? I think it's a really, really tough question because I think if you are the parent of a child with OCD, you know, and they take an hour to leave the house because they have to check all the windows are closed, mm -hmm. I, I can well imagine it would be convenient to say and not just convenient you know essential to say look don't worry about it i'll check the windows you know or i've checked them and they're fine let's go rather than saying you know you know what you're going through is irrational and it so i i think every kind of 
family has to sort of deal with that balance in, in their own way, but with the knowledge that it's not going to get any better while you're doing that. And the other right. thing to say, though, from the patient's point of view, is that we are really devious OCD patients. We will find reassurance mm. and we will sneak it in, even though we know it. So when I was having therapy, they would say, how has your week been? And I would describe some of the intrusive thoughts that I'd had waiting for someone mm-hmm. to say oh well, that's silly wasn't it that was my reassurance now so my wife knows obviously about the ocd and she knows the general content but what i do is i now have to say to her look i'm having an ocd moment i'm worried about something i'm not going to tell you what it is because if i tell mm-hmm. her you know i don't know i scratched my finger on a nail i was worried there was blood on the nail she would just say oh well, that's silly isn't it you know there's no risk and that, that's that would be getting reassurance so it's not only are kind of family members and friends have to be aware of their own behaviours and voice and, and, and actions around people with OCD. Very cruelly, they have to be on alert <laughs> for the way yeah. people are trying to get them to sort of inadvertently give them that reassurance. Yes. It's so interesting that you put it that way, but I've certainly seen those behaviours sometimes, you know, in clients who have struggled with this because basically you're looking for that comfort in any way possible. And so if you have to sort of do it in a way that you're not quote unquote supposed to, the urge to get that comfort is still so overwhelming that you're going to break the rules of the treatment a little bit and try to do it. And that's why, yeah, ideally having the family on board is so important. I think just on just coming back to what you said, I think what I would say is that anybody who is having any kind of treatment needs to tell those they live with and, yes. and who, their loved ones. And even if you're not, you know, I think none of this is helped by putting barriers up communication barriers. So true. And we see that across the board, folks that get treatment for eating disorders, and then they go right back into the same home scenario that they had before with the same weird emotional baggage at the dinner table and the same comments and all of these things. And I think so much of it is really having the ability to be vulnerable and say, this is what I'm going through and and here's what I need and, and here's how you can help. So I I see so many myths out there as a psychologist about OCD. Are there ones that sort of stick in your mind that you've been able to help dispel these misconceptions out there in the public since writing your book? I I think the one that does the most damage is the classic cliche that OCD is just a behavioral quirk and Mm -hmm. and can even have positive, you know, outcomes. You know, there was a terrible TV program over here, OCD Cleaners, where they would get people with OCD to come and clean your house because in theory... People with OCD really like cleaning and are really good at it. And there are also, as you know, as you will come across cliches around people with OCD liking things balanced and symmetrical and ordered. And the danger with that is that so people with OCD get their information the same place as everyone else does. So if you grow up thinking OCD is around tidying your record collection or balancing your socks, and when you start having these intrusive thoughts about HIV or about hurting people or about hurting yourself you think well what's wrong with me because it isn't mm-hmm. ocd and and so there's yeah. just that you put an extra level of uh, an extra hurdle in the way of people from from seeking treatment yeah and so i mean i'm not as critical of people using ocd in that way as some people because i think it's it's ignorance but it's kind of a pure ignorance it's just this is what people think it mm-hmm. is it's not it's not meant to be malicious and i like to think right. that we're somewhere along the path that we were with using the term schizophrenia, you know, when I was growing up, schizophrenic was used to mean split personality. Right. And it was applied to things like, I don't know, a soccer team that had a very good offense and a very poor defense was a schizophrenic yep. team because it had exactly. the 
And I think we've kind of, we've grown beyond that now. I think most people know that isn't what it's about, but yet you almost have to be familiar with the term to start with. So I think the fact that OCD is out there and everyone kind of is familiar with the term is a decent platform. And then usually once, right. once you point out to people that actually that's not what OCD is, most of them go, oh God, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. And then hopefully they won't do it again. Yeah. And it won't become this slang that you see on social media. Oh, I'm bothered by things being uneven. Therefore, I have OCD yeah. and it's that simple. Well, David, it's been so wonderful to talk with you today. And I really appreciate you taking the time. And I know that people will find a lot of help in your book. And so thanks for all the good you're putting into the world for others as well. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast. Give us your take and opinions on topics and guests. And you know you've got that friend who listens to like 17 podcasts. We'd love it if you told them where to find us. Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Daniel Marity, and my studio security, it's Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care.